When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Thank you for downloading this Intelligence Squared podcast. For more information on our debates, talks and discussions, visit intelligencesquared.com and sign up to the newsletter. A journey into outer space. This event took place on the 16th of March 2011 at the Royal Geographical Society in London. Good evening and welcome to you, the audience, and to our distinguished guests, the cosmonauts, who are going to take us on our journey into outer space. The journey will have several phases. We'll blast off with a presentation from each of our guests. After each presentation, I hope there'll be time for a few short comments from the other cosmonauts. In our journey's next phase, we travel through deep, as we travel through deep space, we'll ponder the question, are we alone in the universe? And finally, as we, re- we return to Earth orbit and splash down, it'll be the turn of you, it'll be the turn of you Earthlings, to ask your questions of, of our cosmonauts. But first, a, a word of caution. All time is relative. And there's a special and little-known theory of relativity that explains an anomaly in time found only at conferences like this. It states that for any speaker, the time remaining speeds up in inverse disproportion to the time already taken... And consequently, consequently, the faster you speak, the less time you have. And there will never be enough time to say all you have to say. So in the hope of introducing an element of gravitational time dilation, I'll respectfully tap my glass at at two minutes before each speaker has to end. Um, Anyway, here we are. We're at T minus one and still, still counting. So it's time to introduce our first cosmonaut, who will take us through blast off and into Earth orbit. He's a biographer, winner of many awards, including the Somerset Maugham, the Duff Cooper, and the James Tate Black. His latest book, The Age of Wonder, How the Romantic Generation Discovered the Beauty and Terror of Science, explores the scientific ferment that swept Britain at the end of the 18th century. He writes about the early investigations into into the nature of the universe, deep time, and deep space, and the impact that this had on the romantic writers like Coleridge, Mary Shelley, Byron, and Keats. Please welcome... Richard Holmes. Uh, Good evening. I'm just the warm-up act, (laughs) a term that Brian knows very well from a previous existence. And if you know the second law of thermodynamics, the warm-up act is not very easy. I want to present a particular idea to you, not the cutting edge of science, but the trailing edge of science. The history 
of outer space, the history of the universe, can take two forms. One is the history that begins, we think, with the Big Bang and is now 13.75 billion years old. Complicated because, as we know, the Bang wasn't really a Bang and the Big was very small, as it turns out. But there's another kind of history, and that is the history of man's understanding of space. And that's what I want to look at, the trailing edge. So what I've given you in the 19.5 seconds that remain, or minutes will do, is the Ladybird book of outer space um, uh, at warp speed, all right? Um, so some familiar names to you there. The main thing I want to point out is those two dotted lines. Everything before the first dotted line, 1610, is naked eye astronomy, naked eye cosmology. And everything after the second line, which uh, I put that date, uh, 1929, um, is also astrophysics. It's the point at which the analysis of light from the stars gives us a completely different hold on the nature of the universe. So I've made those two uh, big distinctions. And also you'll know, some of you will see it says 10 great astronomers. There are actually 11 there, if you look very carefully. But we'll move on. <laughs> Claudius Ptolemy. Alexandria, someone who worked at the great library of Alexandria, first and second, early second century. From him, a quotation. Being merely a mortal, I know that I am born for a day. But when I follow at my pleasure the crowding multitude of the stars in their circular courses, my feet no longer touch the earth. That's Ptolemy. And I think that tells us something immediately about the extraordinary sense of wonder in his book, the wonders and terrors of the universe, but also, in a curious way, a familiar, a close universe where astronomy and astrology are bound together. The universe is stable, it's hierarchical, and it's eternal. And a very important point about Ptolemy is that he is a kind of anthology of all the theories, including the Greeks and the Babylonians and the Egyptians, 500, maybe 1,000 years before him. All that is in his great book, The Almagesti. Um, let's just remind you, that's what his Earth looked like, uh, his universe looked like, with the Earth at the centre. Rather interesting the way that structure goes, because then it's the Moon, then it's Mercury, then it's Venus... And then it's the sun, all right? And then out we go to Jupiter and Saturn. And, of course, the big question of Ptolemy's Earth-centered universe is what is outside the green box? That's the question. And, and here's one form of answer to it. Uh, this is a theological medieval cosmos based, again, the same of the Earth in the middle, and the moon and the various signs going up to the seventh sphere, Saturn. And then we have the eighth, Octavium, the firmament of stars. And then the crystal sphere above it, the ninth. And then the tenth, the prima mobile, which gives us a key to how he understood this structure, which is a series of crystalline interlocking spheres, which rather like a generator. And the prima mobile, the first 
the outer movement moved them all like a wonderful clock. And as they moved, they played the music of the spheres. And that very powerful idea, which dominates the literary imagination uh, in, in Europe, certainly, and in Arabia as well, for the 1,500 years, really, after the Almagesti. Um, one other thing I want to do is to associate my astronomers um, with particular writers. Now, I wanted to associate him with Ovid. Um, I couldn't get a picture of Ovid, so I got a real picture of a Ptolemy, uh, which um, <laughs> was headed also distant star, all right? Um, and it's also to remind you, and you'll never now forget, that Claudius Ptolemy was not a member of the royal Ptolemies, but Ovid wrote his great transformation, the Metamorphoses book, which you can find in a wonderful Ted Hughes translation now. It is called The Translations or The Transformations. And in there, you see the Ptolemaic universe, the same thing he's done in literary terms. He's brought together all the mythology um, and the personas of the previous 500 years. So take one example, naughty Queen Cassiopeia. We all remember that, her in the stars. And then her daughter Andromeda, who is tied to a rock, and then Perseus the knight who comes to save her. And there they are in the first constellations we learn. So that's in Ovid as well as Ptolemy, and they're about the same period, first and second century. So it's the other thing I want to do in these few moments is to tie authors to the astronomers. So um, leave them there for a moment. The Arabic astronomers, very, very important. I can only rush through uh, Persian. Um, this one is al-Sufi, who is based in Baghdad. And the wonderful thing is this book of fixed stars. And what they did, among many other things, was to keep the tradition going. They actually saved the Almagesti, translated it, illustrated versions of it. This is Sagittarius, um, and uh, passed it safely on. Uh, he's 10th century, al-Sufi, Omar Khayyam, Poet Omikam was actually an astronomer um, and uh, a mathematician, reformed the calendar. Um, let me read you, because poetry is rare here at the National Geographic. Well, let me read you. Up from the Earth's center, through the seventh gate, I rose. And on the throne of Saturn sat, and many knots unraveled by the road, but not the knot of human death and fate. O come with O Kayam, and leave the wise to talk. One thing is certain, and the rest is lies, the flower that once has blown forever dies. Second law of thermodynamics. <laughs> and also that scepticism, which is also part of the Persian Arabic tradition. Um, lots more to say about then. Rush on. Copernicus. Right, we're now we're leaping forward uh, to the 15th, late 15th century. And here, something else happens. Astronomy, which in, with Ptolemy is associated with stability and tradition, it's very conservative in many ways as a discipline. Suddenly, it becomes edgy, revolutionary. Copernicus is suggesting this thing that not only is the sun the center, that didn't frighten people so much. What really frightened them was the idea that the Earth, our Earth, is spinning and orbiting when it so evidently is not, all right? There is the paradox. And there we begin to get science moving in a way, challenging religion, challenging certain ideas of stability. 
Um, lots more to say, except just remember he's got the Earth at the center, um, uh, the Sun at the center, and the circular orbits, circular orbits of the planets. And his calculations, very interesting, apparently not as accurate as, accurate as Ptolemy's, not always. All right? But this idea, heretical idea, the Sun at the center. So uh, run forward quickly. Um, it's one wonderful thing, PowerPoint. You know this thing? All power corrupts. PowerPoint corrupts, absolutely. That's <laughs> why <laughs> it just does this. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> uh, Tycho Brahe, um, the greatest and the last of the naked eye astronomers, lived on that famous island, Venn. Uh, he uh, was Danish, of course. His observatory is next to Elsinore, which some of you remember has something to do with Hamlet. And this is uh, very relevant. Very interesting thing. He didn't accept entirely Copernicus. That is to say, he, um, he wanted the other planets orbiting around the sun, but he still wanted the Earth to be the center. And that shows how dangerous this difficult it was. Uh, the other thing that I always, you will always remember about Tycho um, two things, maybe. First of all, his nose, it's not clear, that was made of gold. He lost it in an early knife fight in a pub. And anyone who knows Hamlet's remember the Danes are famous for their drinking, and so was he. And now, one tiny footnote, uh, his great-grandparents had the names Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. <laughs> and that allows me, just quickly... Uh, to rush on before they appear, because they will appear. Mm. <laughs> there. Kepler. Now, here, we're early 17th century. Um, Kepler, uh, of course, who, who finally puts the sun at the center. Kepler, who finally realizes we're working with elliptical orbits, and that is the great solution. They're not circular, not elliptical. I was very interested in the kind of quality of the observation here. Um, still naked eye observation. Um, the Mars orbit is not circular by approximately eight minutes, which I think if you look, imagine a full moon at night, it's about, it's less than a tenth of a full moon. It's that kind of accuracy we're dealing with, and it only worked when he realized we were dealing with ellipses. And then suddenly, the mathematics, and he's a great mathematician, uh, of outer space falls into place. Uh, one thing to remember about him, his mother was tried as a witch, which again dates you in a certain way, and <laughs> only in a certain way. He is a contemporary of William Shakespeare. And here's the other interesting thing. We've already um, referred to um, Hamlet as possibly being based on Tycho Brahe and his island near Elsinore. But also in this, uh, Shakespeare was very, very interested in, in the uh, division between was it a, a Copernican or Ptolemaic universe. Uh, but he makes his lovers fall back on the more traditional Ptolemaic universe. So when one man, Lorenzo, is paying court to dear sweet Jessica. Lorenzo says, look how the floor of heaven is thick inlaid with patterns, that little mosaics, of bright gold. There's not the smallest orb which thou beholdest, but in his motion, like an angel sings, still choiring to the young-eyed cherubims, 
such harmony is in immortal souls. So that Ptolemaic thing, that's dated 1597, still there very powerfully in the human imagination. Um, I must leap forward because there's a lot to say about John Donne there as well, but um, Galileo, and yet it moves. We know the, the legendary. The first time, of course, telescopic observation takes place. And again, the sense that science is changing. Now we have active instruments. It's not the naked eye. We have instruments which would take us into the universe. And you remember his famous book, The Starry Messenger, 1610, uh, which is about, it's King Lear, it's that period, all right, 1610. The idea, it's a messenger. We go, we, we're getting messages back from the stars suddenly. They're telling us things. And the universe is, challenges us in many ways. Uh, remember, he found the irregular, the moon was not a perfect uh, globe, but it had mountains and shadows and so on. He found the four, the first four uh, moons of Jupiter. I think they're now 60, aren't they? Moons of Jupiter, something like that. And we found the four, the four that you, can, you and I as amateurs can still find, and there you suddenly see a miniature solar system going on there, One, wonderful. And the rings of Saturn and the fact that there were phases uh, of Venus, all reassuring us that that was how the solar system was structured. Galileo... His contemporary, I would tie to him, is John Milton. Extraordinary thing, um, Paradise Lost, which has almost gone totally... Do people still re read Paradise Lost? They should, because they have wonderful accounts of the great battle between uh, Ptolemaic and Copernicus astronomy, particularly in Book 8, if anybody interested, the angel Raphael has a great discussion with Adam about which is it, which should it be. And Milton uses the imagery of Galileo looking at the moon with his telescope in a wonderful way. He, Milton incidentally met Galileo. Mal uh, Galileo in old age in Switzerland, the very young poet Milton, met him. Here's Paradise Lost, book one, just a moment, a single image. This is um, Satan. His ponderous shield, ethereal temper, massy, large and round, behind him, cast. The broad circumference hung on his shoulder like the moon, whose orb through optic glass the Tuscan artist views at evening from the top of Fesolet or Valdano to descry new lands, rivers or mountains in her spotty globe. And that's the message from the moon. I am not perfect. That structure goes, is discussed in Milton's Paradise Lost, and you begin to see then science having a real impact on the literary and art artistic world. Um, what I want to say about Newton, here we're coming, we're now into uh, a universe that we are familiar with, uh, um, a universe defined by mathematics, gravity, that great subject, which uh, Brian will be talking on. Um, the... Gravity, and that's five minutes, not two minutes. It's five minutes, it's five minutes. <laughs> relative, but not that relative. All right. Okay. Um, good. Um, gravity has established the power of gravity in a single formula, a thing that e even amateur can understand the beauty of that. To be able to establish that in a single formula is the way gravity works, and that applies throughout 
the solar system. Very interesting thing here that actually Newton didn't have much to say about the cosmology outside the solar system. The argument was that the laws were universal, the law of gravity is certainly universal, but there was no testing of that. So the, uh, the outer space is still relatively small in that sense. One other thing to say about Newton, this is actually a Joseph Wright of Derby picture, 1765, the orrery, um, many of you I hope will be familiar with. The point I want to make is this, this is a kind of Newton figure, uh, or Brian May, as we often <laughs> in the middle. Um, and he's showing, he's using our, of, with the sun at the centre, you can't actually see it, wonderful uh, Caravaggio-esque effect of the sun shining up. And the point I want to make here is it's children also looking at the nature of space and the solar system. And something else has happened. Newton becomes the first great scientific hero uh, Children know about him. They're taught Newtonian uh, science. The orrery will be in many front rooms to discuss. And so will telescopes suddenly. And more poets wrote about Newton than any other scientist so far. Uh, Alexander Pope, Edward Young, Wordsworth, very interesting. Do you remember that voyaging Newton and his prism? Newton with his prism and silent face. Do you remember the solitary voyage? Um, I can just risk you what I really want to read you, is Byron, Byron on Newton. It's Don Juan, 1819. A little sharp Byron, all right? He's in Italy. When Newton saw an apple fall, he found in that slight startle from his contemplation, tis said, for I'll not answer above ground for any sage's creed or calculation, a mode of proving that the earth turned round in a most natural whirl called gravitation. And this is the sole mortal who could grapple since Adam with a fall or with an apple. That's Byron. And there's a lot more. Uh, It's telling me something, this. Be quick, be quick. These are my special favourites. Two minutes, two minutes. William and Caroline Herschel... And they are the 11th. Caroline is the, um, is the um, missing 11th. Uh, this, I particularly want them for two reasons. One, first really great example of uh, a scientific astronomical team. Caroline, who discovered eight comets on her own, first salaried woman uh, in science. And Herschel, of course, who discovers the new planet, uh, Uranus, but also establishes the Milky Way and writes papers suggesting that Andromeda is a separate galaxy from the Milky Way. So before Hubble, this is the thing I've argued quite a lot about, before Hubble, he established, using this big telescope, uh, that the dimensions of space were something quite, quite different. And there, we barely have time to go through it. Uh, I've put his observation book on the top. The second line down, he's spotting what he calls... uh, perhaps a comet, and that's Uranus, and below it is Keats. Uh, Keats' his sonnet, uh, where, then felt I like some watcher of the skies when a new planet swims into his ken. And again, that tremendous impact. It's public science. People came to see this telescope, and it's also science's romance, and I like to argue that we are still there, and I would say it's roughly 60 seconds. <laughs> Just. Fine. Edwin Hubble? The man who uh, really makes astrophysics work, who, using spectrography, shows that 
from the light, analysing the light from stars, we know what their nature is, what they're made up of. And imagine him throwing that pipe in the air, as in 2001, and there's his Hubble Space Telescope, all right? Um, And there I can now safely pass over to everybody else. Uh, I just remind you, if I can, there you are, take another 10 seconds... There they are, the poets and the astronomers together. And finally, to Halover, here's the problem. Outer space, 13.7 billion, but it's infinite, but it's also round. Over to you, gentlemen. That was wonderful, and, uh, and, I, and I remember the, the Shakespeare quote about the music of the spheres ends with something like, but, but we, being muddy mortals, cannot hear it, which I think is a really, really moving thing, that we can't hear the music of the spheres. I just wonder, Richard, whether the understanding of the history of science has any bearing on the practice of science today. Does it, does it alter the way we work, do you think, or the way these scientists work? Um, I... I... I think my sense is, in fact, they have a very... I heard uh, Brian recently suddenly doing a loop about Maxwell and Maxwell's uh, mathematical theories. Uh, what I would say about the history of science is we're always talking among ourselves about how science can be better taught. And it seems to me the history of science, and I would particularly say, but I would, the biography of scientists is the most wonderful instrument of teaching, and you remember who the people are, you remember what they represent, and it brings the whole thing alive. And a thing to me, tremendously important, is to see how the theories develop in a wider context of the society. Hence, I tie the writers, the imaginative people, to the scientists. And um, this is a thing I feel very passionate, which is against the idea of two cultures. So that's why I think the history of science is so important. I, I read English, and um, when, I, when we read Coleridge, nobody ever mentioned science. I think they should have done. Does anybody have anything they want to add to that, particularly the teaching point? Um, I think, um, I, I mean, Richard alluded to, to Maxwell there. I mean, it, he's right. I think, I think what the history of science can teach you is, is the way that these scientists thought about these problems. I mean, Maxwell um, was... Astonishing! He was one of the. I was going to say he was one of the first um, scientists to really embrace the elegance of mathematics. That's wrong, but he he did a wonderfully elegant thing, which is that he took the um, the laws of electricity and magnetism that have been discovered so far by people like Faraday and Ampere experimentally, and he put them for, for aesthetic reasons, I suppose, into into a single mathematical framework. In doing that, he discovered that the speed of light is a constant. Um, for all observers. Now, he didn't quite know that at the time, but that's what his equations told him. And then Einstein's probably the first person 50 years later or so, 40 or 50 years later, to take that seriously and develop the theory of relativity. So, again, that, that story, I think, of that... For, for me, Maxwell's lesson is that real confidence in the beauty of mathematics, which mm. Einstein had mm. after him. So. Okay. Anybody else? Well, I would just add that... We should also realize that it wasn't easy for those scientists. Uh, it's, it's very, very difficult to come up with new ideas in the, in the face of, of the existing theories that typically work pretty well. Uh, Ptolemy worked incredibly well, and his system was extremely well developed. And uh, Maxwell, for example, 
uh, he of course believed in the beauty of, of mathematics, but at the same time, what he was spending his time with was creating these fantastic uh, mechanical devices to, to try to get some, some grasp of, of what that mathematics means. So, so he's, he hasn't quite left the, uh, the environment that he was in, and I think it's very important to, to understand the environment in which those developments take place. And to know, to know presumably where you've come from in, in the history of your science. I think we'll move on now. Our, our next guest is um, Master of T- Trinity College, Cambridge, and he's a real-life time lord. Um, <laughs> a, a, as Astronomer Royal and Emeritus Professor of Cosmology and Astrophysics, he's stared into and thought about the deep recesses of time and space, which is about as far back and as far out as you can go. His awards include the Gruber Prize in Cosmology, the Michael Faraday Prize for Communication, and Asteroid 4587-Rees is named after him. (laughs) Please welcome Professor Martin Rees. Thank you. I'm going to take you out into the universe, but I'm going to start off with a bit of history. Is Isaac Newton, and he imagined firing a cannonball from the top of a mountain, and he realized that if you could go at 18,000 miles an hour, uh, you would go into orbit. This is still the nicest way to explain orbital flight. But as we know, it wasn't until the 1950s that people did this, and we're celebrating next month the 50th anniversary of Yuri Gagarin, the first uh, man to go into orbit. And, of course, for reasons of superpower rivalry, this uh, program proceeded apace, and uh, I treasure this uh, picture signed for me recently by seven of the Apollo astronauts on the moon. But, of course, it's nearly 40 years since the uh, last men returned from the moon, and since then, uh, people have only been around the Earth and uh, no further than low Earth orbit. But, of course, unmanned probes have been much further and have given us close-up views of almost all the planets in our solar system. And we hear more about this from Colin Pillinger. But I'm now going to talk about uh, the wider universe beyond where any probe can go and the domain of the stars. We know a great deal about stars, their nuclear fusion reactors, and we understand their life cycle. And we see places where they're forming, like in the Eagle Nebula here, where hundreds of new stars are even now forming. We see stars dying. The sun will look like this in six billion years. And we see some stars dying explosively. This is a supernova explosion, and the debris from these explosions makes new stars, and all the atoms that we are made of were forged in explosions like this that happened long away, long ago and far away. But I want to tell you about something which has made the night sky, which of course is part of everyone's environment, a lot more interesting in the last decade. This is a realization that the stars you see are not just twinkling points of light, but that most of them are orbited by planets just as our sun is orbited by the planets, including the Earth. Now, the evidence for this has come by two indirect routes. The first way is to detect 
not the planet, but to detect the small motion of the star induced by the gravitation pull of a planet. The planet and the star orbit around a common center of mass, and it's possible to measure by careful spectroscopy the motions of the star. And by this technique, several hundred planets have been inferred, mainly big ones like Jupiter and Saturn. The technique's not sensitive enough to detect planets like the Earth. But there's another technique now being used especially by the Kepler spacecraft, which is look for transits. The idea here is that if a planet moves across in front of a star, the star will dim slightly. If an Earth-like planet moved in front of a Sun-like star, the star would dim by one part in 10,000. And the Kepler spacecraft is monitoring 150,000 stars every half hour, measuring their brightness with great precision, and will find many planets not much bigger than the Earth. But one would like, of course, to see these planets directly, not just their shadows or indirect effects. And this is more difficult. It'll require either huge arrays in space or the next generation of telescopes on the ground. But let's imagine you could do this. Let's imagine that some aliens were looking at the uh, solar system from, say, 50 light years away. They'd see the sun as an ordinary star. They'd see the Earth as, in Carl Sagan's nice phrase, a pale blue dot lying very close to it in the sky. And the aliens, if they watched the dot closely, would find the shade of blue is slightly different depending on whether the Pacific Ocean or the landmass of Asia was facing them. They could infer quite a lot about the uh, topography of the Earth, the seasons, and the climate. In 20 years' time, we'd be doing that sort of thing for Earth-like planets around other stars, many hundreds of them probably. And then, of course, we'd ask the question, is there life on them? Here, I think the answer is we don't know. We don't know how life started on the Earth, We don't therefore know how likely it is, but this is one of the greatest questions of all, to ask, is there life already out on some of these uh, planets which we are now discovering? Well, let me now enlarge our horizons uh, from uh, these uh, planets that we're going to be seeing and from the nebulae where they are formed to the external universe, galaxies and beyond. Well, as you all know, Our Milky Way galaxy, if we could get two million light years away from it, would look like this. This is Andromeda, our nearest big neighbor in space. A tilted uh, disk of stars circulating a central hub. Here's another famous galaxy. Now, how can astronomers come to understand these galaxies? We can't do experiments on them. If we were studying particles, we'd crash them together in uh, the LHC or somewhere like that. But we can't do that. But we can do this in our computers, in a virtual world. And if we crash two galaxies together, then this is what happens. The gravity of each star attracts all the others, and you end up with this sort of mess. (laughs) (laughs) But we then look in the sky, and we see things like this. And it's not uh, implausible to say what's happened here is two galaxies got very close, and they've sent out tidal plumes. So I say this to indicate that we can understand a lot about galaxies by doing computer simulations and comparing with what we see in the real world. Something else we can do is something geologists can't do. We can look back in time. Now, this picture shows a tiny patch of sky, so small it would take 100 patches like to cover the full moon in the sky, and it would look quite blank with a small telescope. But you see these hundreds of smudges, Each of those smudges is a galaxy, fully equal 
to our galaxy, Andromeda, looking so small and faint because the light set out 10 billion years ago. We're seeing these galaxies far away and when they were still very young. And by studying these, we can understand how galaxies evolve. And we believe they all started in some mysterious Big Bang about uh, uh, 12 billion years ago. Um, and we believe that as the universe expanded, uh, density contrast grew under gravity. And if you take a movie of uh, a simulated universe, you can see time measured along the bottom in billions of years. Uh, then uh, you start off um, with uh, everything structureless, and you end up with something uh, like that. Well, we can infer that our universe started off hot and dense. And we can infer back with a great deal of confidence to when everything we can see with our telescope after 12 billion light years was squeezed down to the size of our solar system. At that time, every particle would have the kind of energy which we could produce in the LHC. But many of the key features of the universe, if you want to understand them, were imprinted when the universe was much, much smaller still. And uh, we would like to understand uh, what made the universe expand. Why is it made up of matter and radiation and dark matter? And we have to go back a long way uh, to when the universe was literally that big. And the physics was very exotic. And many physicists with a straight face discuss this stage in the history of the universe and try to understand the Big Bang. Their conclusions are remarkable. They think they can understand the Big Bang, but their conclusions suggest that our Big Bang may not be the only one. And quite beyond the horizons of what we can see, there may be other cosmoses made from other big bangs. One idea is what's called brain worlds, the idea that alongside our universe, there may be another universe only that far away. But we don't know about it because that distance is measured in some fourth spatial dimension and we're imprisoned in our three. And there's another idea called eternal inflation depicted here where our universe is the bottom right-hand corner, and there's a whole succession of, uh, of, of Big Bangs, an eternal uh, universe, and our Big Bang is just uh, a part of the local environment on this far grander scale. So this is the sort of idea people talk about. So horizons are expanding, uh, as cosmologists speculate, even beyond the most distant objects we can see in the universe. What we can see out to the limit of our telescopes, maybe a tiny, tiny part of physical reality. And this is something we've just realized in the last 10 years. I want, in my last two minutes, or, or how much more? Long? No, you've got more, you've got three minutes. Three minutes, okay, <laughs> uh, to talk about uh, the far future. Um, and uh, the point I want to make here is that um, all, uh, uh, everyone here, indeed most educated people, people other than those in Kansas and Alaska, are well aware uh, that uh, we are the outcome of four billion years of cosmic evolution. <laughs> this time chart here. But even educated people tend to think that we are the culmination of it. We're the end. No astronomer could believe that. Because we know very well how our sun is going to evolve. It's Less than halfway through its life, it's been shining for four and a half billion years, it'll be another six before it flares up and engulfs the inner planets. And the universe may go on expanding forever, getting colder and emptier, and to quote Woody Allen, eternity is very long, especially towards the end. <laughs> so there's a lot more future ahead of us than the past. And the point here is that any creatures witnessing the death of a sun 
won't be like us. They'll be as different from us as we are from a bug, because a time for evolution here on Earth and far beyond in the post-human era is far longer than the time that's elapsed to get to us. So I think uh, we uh, astronomers uh, tend to feel that uh, 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 even if life is unique to the Earth at the moment, it may not be unimportant for the cosmos because we're just beginning and there's abundant time for it to spread far beyond. Darwin himself, I show him here, a much more pleasant scientist than Newton was. Uh, he realized that uh, uh, there was time ahead and there will be new species, because we now know that that evolution won't be natural selection. It'll be uh, on the technological timescale, which we will control. Um, just uh, as a, if, I had more, if I had more than one minute, um, I would describe this picture, which is the uh, which logo you, which, I would use. Not which, you, which you do have, more, just more than one minute. Sorry? You've got just more than oh, Okay. Um, well, I wanted to show this uh, uh, Ouroboros, uh, which shows on the left-hand side the micro-world, on the right-hand side uh, the cosmos, the left-hand side the world of the quantum, right-hand side the world of gravity, and there are many links between left and right. The, uh, um, we are made, we're made of atoms, stars are fueled by nuclei within these atoms, and galaxies are held together by particles even smaller than atomic nuclei. But I want to emphasize two things. At the top, gastronomically synthesized, uh, symbolized, as it were, is the synthesis between the very small and the very large, between the quantum and the cosmos. This is a, an unmet challenge of 21st century science, and we need to do that to understand the Big Bang. Because in the Big Bang, quantum effects could, as it were, shake the entire universe. We've got to worry about gravity and quantum effects at the same time, which we don't have to do in other science. But I also want to mention at the bottom that there's the most complicated things in the universe who are midway between atoms and stars. It would take as many stars to make... many human bodies to make up the sun as there are atoms in each of us. The geometric mean of the mass of a proton and the mass of the sun is 50 kilograms, within about a factor of two of the mass of each person here. And that's because we are very, very big compared to atoms. We have complex structures. On the other hand, we are small compared to stars. We don't get crossed by gravity. So the greatest complexity of the universe is on these intermediate scales. And so the moral of this is that to understand ourselves, we have to understand the atoms we're made of, and we have to understand the stars that made those atoms. And uh, just to finish with, uh, we understand that we are part of a universe that may be even larger than we can ever directly observe. Thank you very much. Um, just... Just quickly before we move on, you, you've, you've looked far, far back, 13.7 billion years to the Big Bang, and which, maybe, as you've just told us, may possibly be only one of many Big Bangs. Is it possible to look far, far, far forward into the future and say how, our, how long we've got, how long our, our universe has got before it stops? Well, I mean, the uh, long-range forecasts are never all that reliable, but the most reliable one we can say... Um, is that the universe will go on expanding forever, uh, getting uh, ever colder, ever emptier. The stars will all die. Uh, in fact, Brian Cox did this rather well on his TV show, um, and uh, uh, um, it will uh, eventually become very cold and very empty, and all that will remain in view will be the remnants of us and the Andromeda galaxy and our own galaxy. Um, that's uh, what uh, is most likely to happen. Um, but uh, be reassured 
that the time before uh, this is measured in uh, tens or hundreds of billions of years. Um, and uh, so, as I say, the time lying ahead, even for the sun, is comparable to the time it's taken for us to evolve from protozoa. Anybody, anybody else got any? Right, um, just if there's, if you can, if you can explain it in one minute, I, re, I read a, about a terrifying idea called a vacuum metastability event. Yes. Ah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Well, can I can I mention this that um, uh, I gave you the most um, uh, reliable long-range forecast, but that assumes that uh, space itself doesn't change. But uh, one thing we have learned is that space itself has some very complicated microstructure. Space has a structure um, just as this, this table does, but the structure of space is on a scale a trillion, trillion times smaller than atoms. And if we could understand space on that tiny scale, uh, we would find it's very, very complicated and uh, we'd understand why it exerts a little force called the cosmological constant, etc. But many people suggest that rather like you can uh, supercool water without it freezing, and then it suddenly freezes if you put a grain of dust in it. It could be that our space is not in the lowest possible state, and it could be triggered to go into a, a state when, uh, uh, instead of space having a small repulsion, it had a, an attraction, and that would lead to a rather rapid big crunch. Um, and uh, uh, So, uh, there again, you can't rule this out, uh, but again, uh, we can be reassured that it's unlikely to happen now, uh, as it hasn't happened at any time in the last 10 billion years. Oh, good. Well, on that, on that uh, very reassuring note, <laughs> we'll, we'll move on. Um, we'll move on. Uh, and our, our next young cosmonaut and sometime rock star is Professor of Particle Physics at the University of Manchester. He holds the British Association's Lord Kelvin Award and is presenter of science programmes for the BBC. Last, he's to be congratulated because last night the Royal Television Society presented him with not one but two awards, one for Best Presenter and the other for the Best Science Natural History Programme. So please congratulate and welcome <laughs> Professor Brian Cox. Thank you. I'd like to, just in this brief 10 minutes, concentrate on one aspect uh, of how we know experimentally about the early universe. It's uh, the way that we know, I think it's the most high-precision way we have, without doubt, at the moment, of probing the early universe, as it was a billionth of a second after it began, began, and that's particle physics. Now, I often get asked, you know, how can it be that banging particles together at high energies tells you anything about the cosmos, about the early universe. Well, the reason is that, as you can see here, at the moment, uh, as Richard has said and as Martin has said, we live in a universe that's 13.7 billion years old. It's an old universe and it's a cold universe full of structure. But what we found over the last 100 years of scientific investigation or so is that as you sweep back in time towards the Big Bang, the universe got smaller and smaller and gets hotter and hotter. The temperatures get higher and higher, and that complexity that we see today essentially dissolves away. And what we found is in the very early universe, the laws of physics 
the universe itself was very sim- simple. So I suppose in a way you can think of the complexity that we see today, stars, planets, galaxies, people, as, as having crystallised out some, some, in some sense as the universe expanded and cooled. So what particle physics does, it's one good way of thinking about it, is that it simply recreates the conditions that were present when the physics was simple. So all this complexity we see today didn't obscure the underlying physics. And quite remarkably, and for no reason that I'm aware of, um, we can understand that physics and we can represent it very simply. This is the machine. I don't want to spend too long on this. I want to talk about the physics. But this is the machine that's allowing us to do that at the moment, the Large Hadron Collider. I'm sure many of you know it's 27 kilometres in circumference. It's 100 metres below the ground in Geneva. You can see the, the runway of Geneva Airport just up there to get some sense of the scale. Its job is to accelerate protons, so hydrogen nuclei, around the ring um, at 99.999999% the speed of light, which means that they orbit the ring 11,000 times a second and then we collide them together to create the conditions in each collision, each proton-proton collision, that were present around a billionth of a second after the universe began. And quite remarkably, when the machine is operating at full design power and speed, luminosity as we call it, we can create 600 million proton-proton collisions per second. So that's why you can do astonishingly high-precision experimental physics on the universe as it was a billionth of a second after it began. Um, I'll just show you one picture to get a sense of scale of the interior of the machine. This is it. It's a a tunnel which is about the same size as a London tube train tunnel. And uh, these two pipes here are the pipes in which the protons orbit around the machine. So what do we know As of today, the LHC is running beautifully, I should say, at the moment. Uh, New results are coming out all the time. But this is the picture that we had pre-LHC and we've still got about the building blocks of the universe. Um, In fact, you only need these particles here, the the so-called first generation of matter, to build you and me and all the stars and planets and galaxies that we can see in the sky. You need these, these two things, the up and down quarks, to make protons and neutrons inside the atomic nuclei. And you need this the electron to orbit around the nuclei to make atoms, molecules, and indeed people. Um, You need this particle. It's intimately involved in uh, the sun, uh, the the, I suppose the physics that allows the sun to shine. It's a particle called the neutrino. It's perhaps very unfamiliar. Uh, There are 60 billion per centimetre squared per second passing through your head now from the sun. The reason you don't feel that is because they interact, fortunately, I suppose, very weakly with matter. But that is all you need to build a universe for some reason that we do not understand, but it's surely telling us something about the structure of the the universe or the laws of physics that underpin the universe, nature has seen fit to uh, give us two carbon copies of those four particles you seem to need to build the universe. Uh, They're identical in every way to those four particles, except they're heavier. So this thing's called a muon. It's heavier than an electron, but identical other than that in every way. And this is called a tau, again, the same as the electron and the muon. It's the same for the quarks, the charm of the top quark, the same as the up, the strange and the bottom quark, the same as the down. So there's a picture there that in many ways reminds me of the periodic table, of Mendeleev's periodic table. Now, understanding the structure of that was a real clue to understanding the structure of atoms. Understanding the structure of this, which we don't, is clearly a clue to some underlying deeper theory of physics. But I want to concentrate on what the LHC is going to do, because we know that already. So you wouldn't build the LHC if that were all that there is to know. Um, 
In order to do that, we need to introduce some mathematics. There's a very famous quote from Rutherford, that all science is either physics or stamp collecting, um, by, which, <laughs> by which he meant uh, not to insult all of the scientists, I think. He meant to say that what we've done there over the years is we've stamp collected, we've discovered particles. But in order to do physics, you need some theory, you need some mathematical theory. This is the theory that we have. It's a you, you may kind of laugh, but it's an astonishingly simple theory in the sense that it descri- <laughs> well, <laughs> in the sense that it describes everything we know about the universe and all the forces of nature other than gravity. So it describes the three other forces of nature: electromagnetism and the strong and weak nuclear forces. So everything we know about matter from the interaction of light with matter to the way nuclei stick together, atoms, molecules. All that physics, radioactive decay, everything is contained within those four lines. Um, I often say, I was told you were a very intelligent audience. I often, as a joke, say, can anyone see the mistake? Because there is a mistake there. (laughs) It's not actually a mistake. It's actually uh, a missing particle in here that's in these equations. And um, so, bizarrely, how long have we got left, by the way, I should say? Oh, you're fine. I'm going to go into some detail then. This is the one thing... (laughs) This is the one thing I think I, I, I felt that I, I wanted to do. Um, you see, there's a particle in here that's predicted mathematically. So, you know, I mentioned earlier about Maxwell, and one of his great achievements was to, to add a piece of mathematics to the equations of electricity and magnetism, essentially for aesthetic reasons. And in doing so, he understood, he showed that light was an electromagnetic wave, just really essentially for mathematical reasons. Well, the same thing is going on here. It's actually this particle here that's represented by a phi, which is not in here. So let me give you some sense, just for a minute or so, of how uh, a physicist, a theoretical physicist, would go about uh, being so bold as to use mathematics to predict a new particle, and then I'll tell you what it does. So if you take away all the forces of nature from that equation, you're just left with this bit. Uh, These symbols here, these phi's, represent all the particles of nature. And this equation is just the particles sitting there, the quarks, the neutrinos, the electron, sitting there, not interacting with each other. Now, there's something called the symmetry principle, which is very powerful in physics. It's called a a gauge symmetry. And you can represent it, actually, by some little, uh, if I can get that to move, by some little clock faces. So these particles here uh, are essentially, in quantum theories, fields. So imagine that an electron is not a point-like particle, but it's essentially a field. So if you put an electron in this room, the, the, the field would fill the room, a little bit like a temperature field, which tells you the, the temperature at each point. Now, it's been known for many years, since the 1930s, that those so-called quantum fields have uh, a degree of freedom in them, I suppose, a bit, uh, so something that you could change that doesn't seem to make any difference. And you can represent it quite accurately by these little clock faces. Essentially, the point is that an electron field has, at each point, a little clock face. And it doesn't matter if you move all the clock faces together, how you move them. They can all be there, all be there, all be there. The equations stay the same. They describe electrons sitting there, not interacting. Now, physicists play around, and the question was asked quite naturally, well, these clock faces don't really mean anything, they're just part of the maths. Why can't you move them all individually? Why can't I put that one there, that one there, that one there, that one there, move them all individually? It turns out that you can't do that. The laws of physics then break down. This equation no longer works properly. So the question was asked, well, just mathematically, just hypothetically, what do you have to do in order to restore the symmetry, to stop your equations caring about where you turn all these little clock faces? The remarkable answer 
is that you have to put those things in, which are the forces of nature. So three of the four forces of nature to a theoretical physicist come from demanding that these clock faces can be moved around anywhere you like to point them. It's called a local gauge symmetry or local gauge invariance. It doesn't matter what it's called, but I hope you see that it's quite an elegant idea because it forces the structure of three of the four forces of nature into the theory. The problem is it doesn't quite work. (laughs) Why doesn't it quite work? It doesn't work because as soon as you put masses in for the particles of nature, then that little scheme breaks down. It doesn't work. So what, that's putting the masses in by hand. So what was done is another, the most elegant way anyone could think of, way of putting masses in for the fundamental particles was dreamt up by Peter Higgs and his collaborators back in the 1960s. So this is called the Higgs mechanism. And these things here are called Higgs particles. They give mass to the other particles of nature. How do they do it? Well, there's a very simple analogy which was developed um, allegedly, well, actually, in the 1980s for Margaret Thatcher's government, who said to physicists, if you want to build this LHC thing to look for these Higgs particles, we want to tell you to tell us on one sheet of A4 paper in language even a politician can understand what the hell it is that you're talking about. And that's essentially what I've just said. And so this analogy was dreamt up. I think it's a very good one. It won a prize for being a good analogy. It says this... <laughs> And we built the LHC, so Margaret Thatcher was convinced. Essentially, the picture is the universe is full of this Higgs field. Is that one minute? Or something? Two minutes. Two minutes, good. Two minutes. Higgs, Higgs mechanism in two minutes. Here we go. <laughs> so the universe is essentially full of this thing called the Higgs field, which were those bottom two lines of that equation, essentially, represented by these Conservative Party members wandering around at a, at a Conservative cocktail party. Then if you imagine that somebody who's not very popular walks into the room, who doesn't interact with anyone, nobody speaks to them, then they can move through the room unimpeded. The analogy is that they're a massless particle. They move through the universe at the speed of light. And imagine someone very popular, very important, walks into the room, very wide. Then everybody wants to talk to them, get a piece of them. They interact very strongly with these people, who are essentially the Higgs particles, the Higgs field, and they're slowed down. Their passage through the universe is slowed down. That's exactly how the Higgs mechanism works. So the particles of nature in this model get their mass through interaction with the Higgs field. Why did we go to that trouble? Because for reasons of mathematical elegance, essentially, that's the simplest way anyone could think of for protecting these beautiful symmetries that seem to generate the forms of the forces of nature so well and give masses to the fundamental particles which are self-evidently there because we are made of massive particles. So the key job, the main reason we built the LHC was to look for these things, the Higgs particles. In other words, we want to test that model. And remember, that model is the model of three of the four forces of nature. So particle physics is not by any means a, a random search for just new particles, smashing particles together to find new ones. What it is is in the main line of physics because the main line of physics really is understanding the forces of nature, as Richard said, all the way back to Newton and gravity through Maxwell, electromagnetism, the strong forces, the nuclear forces we discovered in the 20th century. We've been stuck pretty much since the 1960s with our theory of the forces because of this, because of the sticking point of the particle masses. Um, The LHC will find the answer to that question it may answer many other questions but this is the one it was built for and this is the one because we know where to look in the history of the universe for the higgs mechanism we know how big to build that machine and we built it plenty big enough thank you (laughs)
as a, as a complete layman in this, there's just one thing that occurs to me. What happens if Higgs turns out to be some, the, the, the modern equivalent of phlogiston and doesn't exist? It, I mean, the, the, the interesting thing about um, the standard model is that, so, so you can ask the question, well, let me take the Higgs away. Let, let's, let's just see what the standard model predicts without it. And actually, a very specific energy that we know of from previous measurements, it's a, an energy of 1.4 TeV. Now, the, it's a strange energy measure, that, the, but the LHC has, is running at 7 TeV at the moment and can go up to 14 TeV, so it's way beyond that energy. That energy, the standard model predicts absolute nonsense in certain processes at LHC, particularly scattering of things called W particles. So what you know is that the, the mechanism that generates mass in the universe, it's got a complicated name, it's called electroweak symmetry breaking, but you, we know, you know that that mechanism happens at that energy, definitely, mm. and we're going to see it. So, so what you expect to happen is that you make Higgs particles, real Higgs particles, at those energies, uh, if not at lower energies. If you don't, though, then you have to see, Nature does something and so we know that we can observe it. So, so the LHC is an unusual machine, an exciting machine, in the sense that it is a guaranteed. We, it, it's, a, it's exploration in the purest sense. We know that if we go to this place, we find the answer to at least this question. Um, but we don't know what the answer is. It could be the Higgs. Prob- probably is something like that, right. but it could be something else. Well, very, very, um, very good work in the search for, for Higgs. Well, sorry. Um, one of the mysteries about galaxies is that they contain not just the stars and gas we see, but about five times as much stuff in the form of some swarm of particles which exert a gravitational pull to hold it together. This is the famous dark matter. And the best candidate for the dark matter is a class of particles left over from the Big Bang along with the matter and radiation. And one of the excitements about the LHC for astronomers is that the LHC might detect new particles which could be candidates for the dark matter. So it would be great if they find out what 90% of the universe is made of. If you click to the next slide... Oh, he's gone now. They were on the next slide, so you could have seen them. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure sure we will will (laughs) come to see them uh, when Higgs is discovered or when whatever is going to be discovered is discovered. Our journey now must go on, uh, and we couldn't be in safer hands um, for the next part than with our next cosmonaut. Not only is he founder and chairman of Intentional Software Corporation, but he's a trained astronaut. Uh, He's twice journeyed aboard the International Space Station, and should we get into trouble, he's a skilled amateur radio operator. (laughs) He'll be able to send out our distress signals, and I'll let you know that his call sign is Kilo Echo 7 Kilo Delta Papa, so just remember that in case you're in an emergency. Um, Please welcome Dr. Charles Simone. Thank you so much. So my my role here tonight is to talk about orbital spaceflight. And as uh, Martin has reminded us, on April 12th, uh, we are going to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the first uh, spaceflight, the spaceflight of Yuri Gagarin. During these 50 years, uh, we can see that uh, orbital spaceflight is still a a, a great privilege. Only uh, fewer than 500 people had this privilege of... uh, of going to space, interestingly enough, it's, it's distributed. This privilege is distributed in a very uneven fashion. These uh, fewer than 500 people had more than 1,000 experiences under their belts. In fact, if you are looking at the top 10 cosmonauts and astronauts, among themselves, 
they have flown 60, 60 times. Now, it's, we are also uh, having the 10th anniversary of the first space tourists flying in, in 2001, and I think that, that, that's, a, that's also an important uh, date. Uh, we all knew in our hearts of hearts that people with the right stuff, uh, people who dedicate their lives to, to space, and, and, and they have the physique and the uh, intellect uh, for the training, that they can go to space. But what about the rest of us, people without the right stuff? So, um, and this is, I think, what, what space tourists uh, are contributing. I think that uh, we are uh, doing experiments, uh, experiments on, on, on especially on, on health, the health of cosmonauts. And I think that we are very good experimental subjects because we, we resemble more the, the normal people. Now, we only have uh, 12 minutes, only 11 by now, so we have to, I could talk about this for hours and hours. And uh, I've been in training for, for more than a year and, and, and learned a lot. Of course, this is a Russian uh, program, and I, I've been through Russian training. But during these uh, minutes, we'll just focus on one aspect of space flight that fascinates everyone, and, and in fact, which is kind of a, 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 has, has this sensuous nature. And I'm talking, of course, about weightlessness. Uh, here I am. The yogis have been tried for hundreds of years to levitate, and um, <laughs> in fact, levitation is possible. And uh, and uh, uh, to understand how uh, weightlessness feels, uh, we need to first understand how weightlessness. What creates? Uh, what is weightlessness? What's the physical background of weightlessness? So I'd like to talk about that first, and then we talk about how weightlessness affects human physiology. Yeah, I mentioned earlier that, uh, that it's very difficult for, for scientists to, to come up with their theories because sometimes the, 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 uh, the truth is, sounds very implausible. And I think we have heard that a few times tonight. And, and so, so people, um, people ex- express uh, physics in simplified terms that are not quite true. And so let's see what, what we believe about weightlessness. Uh, one uh, simple theory of, of that weightlessness has to do with the fact that uh, when you go to space, there's no gravity there. Well, that's clearly not the case, because we, we already know that the moon is kept in orbit. Uh, Newton already knew that, that there is, there is uh, gravity as far as the moon. So we have to improve on that theory. Maybe, maybe as we go uh, away from the Earth, gravity gets weaker and weaker, and that's why we're weightless. But that's not true either, because because then there would be several different kinds of weightlessness. Weightlessness that is close up and then weightlessness that is better weightlessness far away. <laughs> There's only one kind of weightlessness. So, so that doesn't work either. The, um, uh, we could improve it. Uh, there is a, what I call the Jules Verne theory, which, um, which was advanced probably uh, in this very venue uh, in the, uh, two centuries ago, uh, which means that, that if, you, if you go toward the moon there would be a point between the Earth and the Moon when the gravity of the Earth would be uh, compensated for by the gravity of the Moon. Uh, people are very keen on this uh, compensation thing. So, and that's what Jules, Verne's, uh, uh, Jules Verne uh, described in his book. Uh, so um, that, that, that's not true either, because then again, there wouldn't be uh, weightlessness on the way to the Moon, and there would be weightlessness at the point. But we have seen, if you have seen the movie Apollo 13, it's weightless all the way. So, so what's uh, now? Here is one that is very plausible, 
And it's so plausible that, that this is from an official document. Now, it's, luckily, it's from, a, from a, um, a medical briefing. If it were in an engineering briefing, I would have been really scared. And, <laughs> by the way, I, I have the greatest respect for, for Russian engineering, and, and uh, uh, I never had uh, any reason to, to fear uh, during, uh, during my flights. It was, it was really incredible. But be it as it may, here's a, a description. It has to do with, again, with this idea of compensation, that somehow there's a centrifugal force in orbit that compensates for the effect of the gravity. People feel this need to compensate for, for gravity with something. If you, if you look at it and really analyze what's going on, it's at, at best, it's a, it's a circular argument, uh, no pun intended, um, <laughs> because the uh, centrifugal force is defined to be the force that keeps you there. So obviously, it will be equal to the force of gravity. Um, in the, in, the, in the worst case, it's, it's just, uh, just gibberish. Um, <laughs> so, uh, and also, I mean, it, it obviously, uh, uh, we don't have to argue about the details. We can just say, what about if you go on a straight line to the moon? Are you going to be weightless? Of course you are going to be weightless. There's no centrifugal force. There's no circle. Uh, so so this, is a, this is a bad theory, too. The, um, oh, let's, uh, the, um, the next... <laughs> The next theory is, uh, is that um, you're weightless when you're falling on a, in an elevator. And that's getting very, very close to the truth. And in fact, if you are reading a high-quality science fiction, they call weightlessness free fall. And uh, so, so there's some connection there. The, the only exception I would raise to that theory is that, that when you are practicing, um, practicing weightlessness in parabolic flights on Earth, and this is a picture taken in a, during a parabolic flight. You're weightless on the way up in a parabola as well as on the way down. You can't see it on the picture whether we are going up or down because of relativity, uh, the relativity of Galileo, not of, of uh, Einstein. But uh, if, you, if, if there were windows in this plane, you would see that, that, that right now we are going up. So enough of this. What is the truth about weightlessness? And so if we asked... Uh, and Newton and I have the same picture as, as Martin. The only difference between our pictures is that he took, he made the copy from the original, and I had to take a copy of a copy. <laughs> so, <laughs> but um, the, uh, if, if you had Newton, you ask Newton about what about weightlessness. There's a very simple answer, and, and which might surprise you. Weightlessness simply means that the only force acting on you is gravity. Now think about that. You, you, you might be surprised. What about right now? Uh, you, you say that, no, I mean, right now I don't feel weightless, and the only force is acting on you is gravity. That's not the case. It turns out that human beings don't, uh, don't sense gravity as such. It's just like radio waves or the, uh, the neutrinos, um, that uh, gravity itself is, is not something that we can sense. What we are sensing right now is you are sensing the pressure of the seed that prevents you from falling toward the center of the earth. And furthermore, because of your body is prevented from falling, your body prevent, prevents your arm from falling. So it puts a pressure on, on, on your arm, and that's why your shoulder joints are, are, are feeling the weight. So in fact, if you think of all those situations, and if you look at this picture, as a shell is, is shot from a cannon on a, on a mythical high mountain, all of these shells will be weightless, on all, all the way, um, uh, because uh, if, you, if you neglect the air resistance, which, of course, there's no air in space. So 
the, the same thing what happened on the airplane when we are going up. The uh, airplane acted as the cannon. It kind of shut us up into the parabolic flight. And then after we were shut out, and we could feel that pressure of being shut out in the beginning of the parabola. You feel a pressure. And then when, when, when we are shut out of the cannon, the airplane is actually flying around us, shielding us from the air so that, 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 that we don't experience the onrush of the, uh, of the air. And that's how weightlessness happens. So now we know the physics. We can um, talk about how it feels uh, to be weightless. And it's a, it's a, uh, I like to say that, that um, weightlessness is not a benign, <clears throat> it's not a benign condition. It's, uh, there are problems in the onset of weightlessness, and there are problems when you return from weightlessness to the earth. And there are also problems with, with the long-term uh, effects of, of weightlessness that, that happen after two weeks, so, so they didn't affect me, but they, they definitely restrict the, um, the length that astronauts can go to or stay in space today to about six months. Those, those would be the musculoskeletal problems that they would experience. People on the shorter-term mission, they, they have vestibular problems, and they have cardiovascular problems. The vestibular problems you can, you can train for um, at least in the, in the Russian training regime, you, you train for in rotating chairs. And uh, I did this, and I didn't get sick. There's actually a name for the, for, the, for the sickness. It's called space adaptation syndrome. And it strikes uh, between half and three-quarters of the people who go to space. And it can be, uh, it, it's, very, it's very much like a motion sickness, but, but, but maybe more serious. I didn't get sick. Again, it's a... Uh, it's, it's very important to get more data points. These are very poorly understood. They, they have uh, great difficulty in predicting who is going to get sick and who is not going to get sick. What are the particular preparations that you can make? Let me not go into the vestibular problems, but discuss the cardiovascular problems that are, are actually very easy to, to um, see. Um, two, minute, two minutes. Excellent. With the, uh, the, uh, the idea is that... that um, uh, in the Earth, you are pumping blood harder up than, than, than pumping down. So in space, there being no gravity, um, so to speak, um, you are, um, um, uh, you, your, your head will feel very full. Now, what I'd like to show you in the last two minutes is a video of what you came to see, uh, really, is the space toilet. Um, <laughs> the behavior of liquids in space. And we are on board of the Soyuz, and... We are using our water fountain to simulate a stream of liquid, and then we are catching that stream of liquid in the, in the uh, receiver of the, of the toilet. And as you see, a, a, a little bit of airflow that is, uh, that is generated by the, by the device will um, we'll, we'll collect all the liquids and, 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 and then safely store it in a, in a uh, container. And um, after that, uh, once you, when you finish with it, of course, you have to turn the device off, and uh, you, you wipe uh, everything clean. You see the organization of, of the workplace with the elastic uh, straps, and um, otherwise, uh, the, the activities are, are, are very much like on Earth. Your, your legs are probably strapped into or hooked into some straps on the floor so that you, you don't move around needlessly. Um, 
and, and actually that you can exert torque. I mean, it's, 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 it's more than that. You have to exert torque, and to, to exert torque, you have to be anchored into, into something. The captain is now uh, turning, the, turning the device off, and, uh, and of course, I have to take the wipe and dispose of it. Well, here comes the, the cover. It has an elastic on it, and the wipe has to go into an elastic bag, which is specifically for those wipes, not to be confused with other wipes. <laughs> but... Um, and uh, what happens with the, with, the, with the garbage at the very end, the, uh, this is the, beyond the living room of the spacecraft. It's a two-room spacecraft, and beyond the living room. And um, after, the, after the mission, the living room is detached, and it will burn up in the atmosphere. And before the return to Earth, uh, the, all the garbage from the space station is piled up in the living room so that it will be incinerated. Thank you. <laughs> We've heard um, many, many uh, mysteries this e- explained this evening, and that's one of the most fascinating, I think. Um, before we go on, I'm, I'd just like to uh, ask Charles one question, that if uh, weightlessness has this effect on astronauts and, you, and, you, and it's difficult to stay in space for more than six months, what will happen to the people who go to Mars, man, Mars? Will they never be able to come back to Earth? Well, I mean, it's a, it is a big problem, and I didn't mention the other, aspect of, the other difficult aspect of space, which is radiation. Between radiation and, and um, uh, weightlessness, long-term uh, effects of weightlessness that leads to uh, bone loss and muscle loss uh, that are very poorly understood, there are grave difficulties to, uh, for long-term space travel. I mean, there are obviously, uh, obviously there are uh, countermeasures that can be taken. Uh, uh, and uh, science fiction movies, you always see the rotating wheel that, that create artificial uh, gravity. Um, Probably in the past they were thinking that, that maybe people feel better, but now it's, it might be that it's, it's, it's actually it's a necessity for their health. And, and of course, with the radiation problem, might be, we might be able to solve by, by appropriate shielding. One of my experiences had to do with measuring uh, radiation on the, on the space station. So, but these are, these are serious problems. Yeah, and we, uh, 2001 is the classic example of the, of yes, the, of the big wheel. Indeed. Right, uh, we, 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 we fly on, and our last cosmonaut is a planetary scientist best known as the leader of the Beagle 2 project, which landed uh, a, a probe. It didn't actually land, I thought it landed. We don't know that. <laughs> <laughs> I think it landed. I'm going to be positive. I think it landed. I think it's out there waiting to talk to us. Um, uh, and that, that took place in... It was a British-built spacecraft which took place in 2003. He has the distinction of having a main-belt asteroid named after him, which is called Asteroid 15614 Pillinger, which gives you a clue to his name. So please welcome Professor Colin Pillinger. Anybody who believes that the uh, human race... Uh is the pinnacle of evolution. You only take one look at this picture to realise that they aren't. <laughs> um, people start with history, or others have started with history. I'm going to start with uh, Bishop John Wilkins, who became the first secretary of an organisation of which uh, um, Martin and I belong, 350th anniversary last year. He wrote the first book about a space mission called A Voyage to a Moon, the Moon. And... Uh, he actually, him and his student, Robert Hooke, who didn't get a mention earlier, uh, preempted Isaac Newton with their ideas about going into orbit 
they had the idea that if you fired an object up straight with gunpowder, you just waited for the earth to turn below, and then you came down thousands of miles further round. Anyway, when uh, Bishop Wilkins wrote his book about the propulsion unit being a, a chariot to- towed by swans, uh, he was criticised by Margaret Cavendish, Duchess of Newcastle. Uh, she was a science fiction writer, once a scientist. And she said it'll never catch on because there are no inns on the way. <laughs> now, that only goes to show that astronomers do their very best thinking in pubs. Um, but what she meant was there was nowhere where you could uh, rest or put up for the night. Now, uh, there were others who... Uh, took uh, space travel much more seriously and much more of interest. And this, to me, summarizes what we do exploring space. It's a cartoon by William Blake. It's for, from a, a decoration for the Gates of Paradise for the children. And it shows this man climbing a ladder towards the moon with two people looking on. To me... Being involved in space, such as Charles here and many of the others on this panel here, is extraordinarily exciting. If you can't be involved in it, I'm glad to see there are 700 people here that want to come in and look on, because that's what space is all about in terms of its getting people interested in science. Um, although, uh, you know, the Duchess of Newcastle was pretty dismissive, uh, Science fiction writers have been absolutely obsessed with space. And this was something that uh, I was brought up to. I sat under the kitchen table listening to the, the last radio series that had a huge audience before people had Coronation Street, Mr. Chairman. <laughs> and uh, this was written by a man called Charles Chilton. It was about the British being the first to land on the moon. And I always believed that the British would would be the first to land on the moon, but it never was. Instead, I was inspired just a few years after Charles Chilton by the first space mission, the launch of the satellite Sputnik. And this was particularly appealing to me as a schoolboy because Sir Bernard Lovell, the man who built the Jodrell telescope, was the first old boy on our school honours board. And he was the man monitoring Sputnik and according to the newspapers that I read, saving the world from the nuclear holocaust. <laughs> because we all believed the Russians this was a weapon. Uh, we're talking about uh, outer space rather than space. There are only 24 people who have been to outer space. That means leave Earth orbit. And there are only 24 that went with the Apollo missions to the moon. This is one of them, Neil Armstrong. And when asked... Why do humans want to explore space? He gave a beautiful summary, in my opinion. It's like love. Everybody wants some, and they don't know why. We don't know why we want to explore space, but we, we do want to do it. Um, he greeted me when I met him in 2010 with, uh, you analysed my samples, and indeed I did. This is how I got into the space business. I worked on the Apollo 11 lunar samples, and I got the job because somebody else felt rather like the Duchess of Newcastle. It won't catch on. They were offered the job, and they said, oh, nothing, there was no career path in space exploration. 
40 years later, I hope every time he sees me on the television, he kicks the cat. <laughs> he kicks himself and not the cat. So I worked on lunar samples. And strangely enough, and it probably is it's like a wild speculation now, I got this job because I was going to look for evidence of life on the moon. We believed 50 years ago, as they believed in the 17th century, that the lunar surface might have sedimentary rocks, the mare that had been named you know, as water, water you know, aqueous regions on the moon, might have evidence of organisms that lived in that water at one stage. So that was what I was doing. It took me a whole day to prove that there was no evidence of life on the moon. And I began to believe this guy who didn't take the job was right. But I didn't stop there. And I just threw this slide in, actually, is because this is what the next stage of lunar exploration has to be. And I'm sure Charles would love to be involved. It's to build a permanent... Uh, base at one of the lunar poles. And the job I'm actually doing at the moment is trying to help NASA and ESA design a spacecraft that would prospect, prospect from water at the lunar south pole. So it's a sort of a full circuit almost in my career. But that's not the main theme of what I'm talking about. Can't have a talk like this without a picture of a rocket taking off. <laughs> um, this is a magnificent picture of the... Uh, the Viking mission to Mars, taking off in 1976. This was a serious attempt to see whether life existed on another planet in the solar system, i.e. Mars. And this man has been mentioned before, Carl Sagan. Here he is standing by a model of the Viking lander. Um, in, and this was a, a, a machine designed specifically to look for life on the red planet. It had on board some biological laboratories that were going to test to see whether there were living organisms that could be made to reproduce and metabolize and so on and so forth. It was a marvelous idea. It just turned out to be very wrong. <laughs> now, that's something about scientists you have to appreciate. Every scientist that's been talked about tonight is a risk taker, prepared to be wrong, to learn by their mistakes in the hope that they will find out something which is new and original because there's nothing quite like it. But being the first person to know something, even if it's only for 10 seconds before the next guy, there's nothing like that feeling, I assure you. This machine tried to uh, do this experiment. It was eventually decreed that there was no evidence for life on Mars. But as uh, Martin Rees said at the time, the absence of evidence is not you know, evidence for absence. And so it's unproven, which was rather lucky for me because the one thing that you were able to find out of, uh, from that Viking mission is that we fortunately had bits of Mars here on Earth already. This is a meteorite that was collected on Antarctica in 1979. Those dark bits there are glass which contained uh, gas trapped in it. We were able to do a, uh, analyze that gas and come up with a one-to-one -one match for the Martian atmosphere for six elements. And the group who worked for me were the ones that found that the match was for the most abundant element, carbon as carbon dioxide. This demonstrated we had a Martian rock, and we were able to show that there were things in this Martian rock which were deposited from water, 
And lo and behold, that water contained organic matter, which we said was indigenous to the rock, which indeed we believe it was. Why is that fantastic? It's because on Earth, when you find organic matter in minerals deposited from water, that is evidence for when life began on Earth. And that test holds true right back to 3.9 billion years ago. Uh, six years after we'd done, seven years after we'd done that work, another Martian meteorite, this meteorite here called Allen Hills 84001, was found to have what in, it, what in it what was believed to be a fossil. And this was deemed to be such an important finding that uh, the president, Clinton, president of America, Clinton, was brought out onto the White House lawn to announce this finding. And funnily enough, the BBC immediately dragged me in front of a camera. It's the first time I've ever had a, and the last, I've ever had a president as a warm-up act. <laughs> so, uh, but both of these two things are, one of the things that Carl Sagan said about Mar- uh, life on Mars is, if you want to show that there's life elsewhere in the solar system, it's such an extraordinary finding, you have to have extraordinary evidence. Now, both, in my opinion, both of these pieces of evidence I've talked about from Martian meteorites have stood the test of time. However, it's not extraordinary evidence. The organic matter that is there on Earth would be taken for... uh, You can argue that it's not contamination. People will argue that it is. You can argue that it isn't. I won't go into it. People have argued that this isn't a fossil. There are things associated with this fossil. There are minerals that have a biological or- origin that can't be explained any other way than they were deposited from organisms. So these, so these are very strong pieces of evidence for life on Mars. However, this is so dramatic a finding that there are some people that don't want to believe it. No matter about can't believe it, they don't want to believe it. In order, to, This is what Beagle 2 was all about. We were deciding to go back to, the, to Mars and do the experiment on Mars that people had criticised us for on Earth. We were going to avoid the possibility that what we analysed was some kind of Earth organism which contaminated those meteorites. And to do it, we had to shrink the lab full of equipment that we built to do the meteorite experiments down to the size of a shoot box. Uh, nearly a tonne down to five kilograms. That's what space missions are all about, making things smaller. And if Beagle had landed and carried out its, expense, its experiments, and there was every reason to believe it did land, but didn't send a signal back, we may have been able to detect and prove the existence of residues on Mars that would be the remnants of organisms that once lived on the planet or were still living now, because the rock that we first found the organic matter in was a very young rock in geological terms. And that could mean that those organisms still exist on Mars now. And there is other evidence, such as the gas in the atmosphere on Mars, could be uh, the, the remnants or the ex- exhalation products of microorganisms. So there's very good evidence to believe there's things on Mars, but we just haven't got the nail right through it yet to to tie it down. Beagle 2 could have provided that answer, I believe, 
And if we could have provided that answer, then we would have shown that life on Earth is not unique. And the ultimate extension of showing life on Earth is not unique is that, uh, like many other people in this room, I'm sure, who stood outside in a dark night and gazed at the wonders of the sky, then we would be halfway to knowing that we aren't actually alone in the universe. There must be you know, planets out there that Martin's talked about that are probably teeming with life and are probably far more advanced than the, the people in this room, including all those up here and the Astronomer Royal and... Uh, yeah, the latest television astronomer uh, uh, <laughs> and myself. Thank you. Um, before I uh, get asked for quest- questions from you, I'll just ask. Our participants, what they think about that. Martin Rees, earlier on you said, life in the universe, we just don't know. Is that, is that something that you... Um, well, I think so, but I would like to emphasise that if we found life elsewhere in our solar system and could be sure it originated independently, then that would be crucial, because if it happened twice in one solar system, it couldn't be a fluke, and it would happen millions of times in the galaxy. So I'd like to ask Colin the question, assuming that he were right that he had found life on Mars, would he expect that it had originated independently or could it have gone on a meteorite from Mars to the Earth or vice versa? Well, that's a, the interesting question that would arise if you find it. Because this was one of the reasons why we chose to call Beagle Beagle 2. It was because what gave Darwin the, cl- you know, the clues to understanding evolution is that he went to another part of our planet, found something different, and therefore had two things to compare and contrast. Now, nobody who's ever sat on an examination paper won't ever, you know, would know about this question. Compare and contrast X and Y. If we found another life, or found life on Mars, then we could look at it and see if it was the same as ours. We could look at it and see if it was different. And I would like to believe it was different because that would help us solve this question about how did life start? Brian Cox, you were nodding away there. What's your... No, it's, it's very interesting, because on um, the last series I did, Wonders of the Solar System, you, if you remember it, there was a, there was a man called Richard Hoover who, who was uh, with us in Iceland taking cores, ice cores from the, the um, glacier there. And, and to my astonishment, he took an ice core and, and showed me uh, living organisms in the ice. They've been there for a long time, essentially, in suspended animation. And he's been uh, at a very controversial time recently because he, I mean, Colin will know, he's, he's, uh, he's published a paper, which you might have seen widely reported, that, again, he firmly believes, and I spoke to him for days about it, it's fascinating, he firmly believes we've found fossils and evidence for really complex organic material in meteorites. Right? He firmly believes it. And so you can follow that um, on the web, but it's actually quite controversial. I think the refereed reports for that paper are about to be released, which is very unusual uh, because it's such a big claim. But he's, he's been adamant for years. That, as, as Colin has said, it, he agrees completely with you, doesn't he, on that? Oh, sure. Did you know but, that, Richard? Uh, no, I know about the Nasser paper, yeah, yeah, but I, haven't, uh, I didn't meet him last week, yeah. as you probably did. Um, people have claimed to have found fossils for at least 200 years, uh, some people have claimed to actually have found living organisms in meteorites. Um, 
the president of the Royal Society at the time asked Louis Pasteur to look for uh, living organisms in meteorites. And Pasteur never published it because he didn't feel he had any success. But there's a, you know, this is a very, very long story, and it goes in cycles like this. And some, sometimes you're up and sometimes you're down. At the moment, we're obviously up again. And Richard, Richard Holmes, is, is this something that's interested us for millennia? Yes, I mean, I think that's one of the most interesting things. Aristotle was determined that there was no life outside the Earth. He thought that was the realm of the gods and everything solid and Earth-like was there. Whereas his uh, contemporary, Epicurus, the Epicurean, believed that the whole universe was packed full of life, abundant. And that debate goes right on. A very interesting moment, Newton's Principia, which is published in... Uh, in uh, I always get this wrong, but I'll get it right, 1687. <coughs> a year before is the great first book by Bernard de Fontenelle, a conversation on the plurality of worlds. And that's where the modern discussion begins, 1686. Uh, and it continues, and I have to say this discussion always reminds me uh, of a wall graffiti I saw in Cambridge in 1966, and it read, is there intelligent life on Earth? <laughs> Very 66. But there is a point behind that, which is what I think you learn from the history of it, is that we are always asking particular contemporary questions when we ask, is there life out there? So maybe Epicurus was thinking of an entire civilization. We may be thinking of bacterial life. Yes. But the discoveries will be equally significant, as we know. Absolutely. You know, I, I can just say one thing. I think the tragedy in, in this story, and Colin kind of alluded to it, is that, that, that probably, well, that's a bit unscientific, but maybe I could say that, probably the reason we haven't found it is because we haven't looked... We haven't had the desire to look hard enough. I mean, Colin did, um, and, and as he mentioned, Viking went there with, with what we now know is probably the wrong set of experiments. There's a, there's a mission called ExoMars, which should be going to Mars, a joint NASA-European mission in 2018, I believe, which is now in, in financial trouble. You're talking about, you know, I think the budget was $3.5 billion. They want to cut it to 25 or something like that. So you're talking about, you know, single-figure billions to answer, again, as Colin said, probably the biggest question in the history of humanity, one that we all want to know the answer to passionately. And the fact that we can't afford, as a world, a few billion dollars to go and probably get the answer to that on Mars is, to me, a, a tragedy, actually. There are plenty of people who actually believe in the conspiracy theory that engineers don't actually want to find life on Mars <laughs> because it would kill the goose that laid the golden egg of having more and more and more missions. Charles Simone, did, what, was, was the um, search for life in the universe part of your... Uh, were the astronauts that you, you went with, was that something that they were interested in? Well, uh, no, I think that the, 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 these are more practical people. You know, why, <laughs> this is a good question. You know, why, why do you want humans to be in, in space? Uh, uh, and, and science is probably not the right answer. I think that uh, unmanned space probes uh, do, a, do a much better job. Uh, for example, uh, Beagle too. If, if, if you had to have an engineer there, the, the cost would go at least by a, a factor of, of 10 to the 7 or 8. <laughs> so um, uh, the, uh, why, should you, why should people be in space? And it has to be something philosophical. It cannot be, I don't think it's a, it's a scientific question. 
Uh, I think science is, is, uh, is best done with, with unmanned uh, space probes. I'd just like to add to the, to the question of is there life in the, in the universe? Uh, just two things. One of them is Giordano Bruno got into trouble because, because of, he was teaching that there are, there are many, uh, many planets with, with life on them. And, and then, of course, the question is how are those people and the other planets redeemed? So that's where the church got, got very upset. But set, my, set fire to him, yes. The, the other, um, the other uh, question is that I, I'd like to ask Martin if, if, if you would like to say a few words about the entropic principle, which I think is, 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 is very key, uh, this, this idea of, of, uh, of the universe being tuned for, for life in a, in a very profound way. And if, if that's the case, I don't think uh, uh, we, need to be, we, we, are, we should be surprised when, when life will be found somewhere else. I think that it's, it's, uh, uh, it's, it's pretty much a given, uh, given the, uh, this, this, this incredible fine-tuning. We'll, okay. ju- we'll, we'll just listen to Martin, and then we'll throw it open to the floor. Yeah. Um, well, it's certainly the case that you can imagine a universe governed by slightly different laws, uh, where there'd be no chance of life, where you wouldn't have complex chemistry, um, etc. And there's a lot of speculation about whether, if there are the big bangs, they give rise to other universes, governed by different laws that might be sterile or stillborn, as it were, because they couldn't give rise to life. Um, but I think uh, um, we all know that the physical laws seem to be the same throughout all the parts of the universe we can see. A distant galaxy contains atoms just like ours. So the chance of life originating on a distant planet should be the same as on the Earth. And that leads to the important point I wanted to make, which is that uh, even the most Earth-bound biologists would like to know how life got started here on the Earth, because Darwin has told us how simple life evolved into our biosphere, but no one really understands how life actually got started. And I think everyone realises that's a very important problem. If that could be answered, that would, of course, tell us straight away whether it was something that was likely to happen, given any similar environment, or whether it was a rare fluke, and it would give us clues as to what sort of environments to look in. So I think the origin of life even for earthbound biologists, is clearly a big question for the 21st century. Could I, could I comment on that? Uh, Actually, um, Colin, I'm sorry, Colin, I'm sorry to interrupt you, yeah. but I think that we, 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 there are a lot of people dying to ask questions, and we will take questions from the floor now. And Colin will, sit, can, will, it will be available afterwards. Uh, the gentleman over there, I'll take them in groups. The gentleman over there raising his hand up with a grey shirt on. That's that's the that's the gentleman. And there's a there's thank a gen- you. That must be me. And there's another gentleman uh, up at the back there waving a white paper. We could, we could hear those two questions. And I, I apologise, Colin, for interrupting right. you. Thank you very much. Do the panel think that interstellar and intergalactic tr- space travel will ever become a reality? That's the first question. The second question from the gentleman who was waving his. Um, yes, this is a question uh, for uh, Martin Rees or anybody who refers to what Martin said. Um, the various theories about the fact that this, we may not be in the only universe and that there are all these various models, are these theories actually scientific in the sense that is it possible to design an experiment which would prove or disprove that they're right? So first of all, the intergalactic travel, is it a reality? Will it ever be a re- reality? I'll ask Charles Simone to answer that one. Well, the, Returning to the entropic principle, uh, I, I think that uh, I believe maybe a little bit stronger than Martin that, that the, the laws, uh, of course, if you had different laws, there wouldn't be humans. Uh, but, but the laws could be 
different just by a very, very, very small amount, and still there wouldn't be humans. So, so there is a, there's a little bit of fine-tuning going on by, by whatever means, which guarantees that we are here. Now, asking Mother Nature to give us international travel in addition for mere existence, I think that's uh, gilding the lily. And so, so I am not, I'm not sanguine that, that that will happen. In fact, it might very well be that the universe is constructed. The way the universe looks right now with the, with the distances and, and, and everything else and the energy requirements of high speeds and, and so on and so forth, it's, it's very unlikely that, uh, that um, I wouldn't be surprised if it were impossible to, to, to meet these other lives that are almost guaranteed to be there. There's one, one thing I, I would say, in principle, from a physics perspective, um, it, the, the distances are, are as small as you want them to be, which is a strange thing to say. It, 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 I'll give you an example of the Large Hadron Collider. If you travel close to the speed of light, then distances shrink. It's called Lorentz contraction. And the Large Hadron Collider, because the protons travel at 99.999999% the speed of light, is actually four metres in, in circumference to the protons. So it shrinks from 27 kilometres to four metres. The same does apply to interstellar and even intergalactic travel. So it's an engineering issue of whether you can approach the speed of light. And so the, as a physicist, I'm perfectly comfortable with travelling anywhere in the universe. The, actually, the limit is, is if you travel at... It, just to, you can't travel at the speed of light, but light, for light itself, there is no distance, spatial distance, between any points in, in the universe along its direction of travel. It's the limit of that. The whole universe collapses to a pancake. So at least in principle, you can go anywhere you want. Brian is, so, is right in principle. The unfortunate <laughs> fact that he neglected to mention that by the time you get there, and you do get there, in a, in a uh, time that seems to you a couple of years, it will be a, a couple of hundred million years. So, uh, so probably it will be too late. On, on Earth, yeah. <laughs> on Earth, so, yeah. So, and, yeah. and also at the other, other reference system where you're going. So. We, we need Captain Kirk. Um, uh, so, um, Martin Rees. Okay. Um, uh, on the interstellar spaceflight question, I, I would say it's a post-human enterprise, not a human enterprise. And post-humans may be either organic or they may be uh, uh, computers and robots. So they may go interstellar or intergalactic distances, but I think humans won't. Uh, the other question was about uh, whether um, other universes, as it were, are part of science. Um, they're speculative, but I would say they are part of science, um, and one day we couldn't know whether they exist, because in order for something to be science, you don't need to be able to test all the predictions of a theory. You need to be able to test some. And so we may have a theory one day about the Big Bang, which can be tested in a number of ways and therefore gains uh, um, credibility. And if that theory predicts other universes, then we take that prediction seriously. So we've got to have a theory which applies to the Big Bang, which we can test in some ways and which survives some tests. And then if it predicts other universes, we would take them seriously, even though we could directly observe them. I could just very quickly say it, it may be within our lifetimes or within the next few years because it's true the LHC could discover, for example, extra dimensions, extra spatial dimensions in the universe. And if it does that, then you're beginning to get into the experimentally testable regime for certain string theories, for example. So, so it, it's possible it could be within the next few years. It's not probable, I would say. Possible. It's possible. Any more questions? Are there any up in the gallery that... Okay, yes. That. Um, <clears throat> sorry, hi. It's going back to um, sort of the origins of, origins of life elsewhere in the universe. Um, if organic 
sort of uh, molecules are being generated when stars die everywhere in the universe and amino acids are being made when stars die, then surely my question is, well, my, is, is that the hard work's been done because proteins are simply strings of amino acids. So do they not just need to find a home in some water somewhere so they can come together? So, Col- yeah, the hard work's been done, is it not? Colin Pillinger, the hard work's been done, the amino acids are out there. Um, all manner of uh, molecules have been uh, discovered in space. I have a real problem with uh, people who say that you, to detect life, you need to detect amino acids or DNA or whatever, because I think that's a bit presumptive. Um, there are so many millions of atoms that you could make from carbon, or molecules you could make from carbon, that could just as easily be the basis of other forms of life. And since uh, carbon is the fourth most abundant element, hydrogen is the most abundant one, Oxygen's the third. You can make water and carbon. And nitrogen's the, fo- the fourth, act- fifth, actually. You can make so many compounds from the first few atoms in the uh, periodic table. It could be just anything that is the basis of life. And looking for amino acids is, uh, is actually, in my opinion, uh, just an experiment that could go wrong because life might not be based on amino acids. That was the beauty of the... Uh, I thought of the Beagle experiment. It was uh, so much more dependent on the physics of, uh, of uh, the chemistry of life than it was dependent on the, uh, what we knew about life on Earth. OK, so amino acids aren't the only thing. There's another one from there. Hi, I just wanted to ask Colin about um, the fossils um, the, in meteorites, just to go into a bit more detail about the evidence that you talked about and you said that you weren't going to talk about it because it was... Um, too complicated, but could you go into more detail about it? Because I'm quite. <laughs> <laughs> no, I wasn't. I wasn't talking about the fossils being too complicated. I was, uh, I was talking about it's a bit. Uh, it's the argument about whether the organic matter in the meteorites is contamination. There are people that believe those. Uh, you know that what we've actually analysed is organic matter is just. Uh, um, organic residues that the meteorites have picked up during their, uh, the time they've been on Earth. And the meteorite, which was most abundant with organic matter, had been on Earth for something like uh, 15,000 years, so there was plenty of opportunity. There was, however, a meteorite that uh, fell in Egypt in 1911, which was picked up uh, almost immediately it fell. And that, too, has organic matter in it, or it has carbon in it, which... Uh, cannot be terrestrial carbon. But it's a rather esoteric argument to go through it. I can just, you know, therefore it, it's, uh, it's less easy to explain. The fossils argument, about people have argued that these are fossils that somehow got into the rock 84001. Uh, I once had a next-door neighbour I tried to explain this to for years for ages, for at least several hours. And then he said to me at the end of it, and I realised I hadn't done a very good job, yeah, but I still wonder how those things burrowed into the rock. <laughs> I think it's a good question. How, do these, how did these things that uh, the Americans at NASA Johnson Space Centre describe as fossils, if they're contamination, how did they burrow into the rock? This is just nonsense. It's a very good question. How did they burrow into the rock? We've got time for a, few, a couple more questions. There's a... Somebody in a red, red uh, jersey there by the pillar with the sunglasses on his head. 
And a lady there waving her arm. Can you wave, can you wave your arm again? Yes, that lady there. Could, could we give her the microphone, please? Thank you for an inspirational evening. Um, I, uh, Brian, I saw you on television the other day, and you said something that surprised me because you said it with, uh, with absoluteness, and that was that there weren't any, I'm going to paraphrase poorly, but there weren't any elements uh, in the universe that aren't found here. How, how do you say that with such confidence, if I paraphrase correctly? Um, well, so, so you, you could have very short-lived, extremely heavy elements that are made in... in, in it's, un, it's unlikely. I mean, I, what I think we said in the series was that the heaviest naturally occurring element that's essentially found on Earth is, is uranium. Uh, there are heavier elements, and we're discovering new heavier elements all the time, but they're extremely, extremely short-lived. So, um, so, so we know that there are no elements, there can't be any from hydrogen to uranium other than the ones we've seen, because all that a new element is is the addition of one proton in the nucleus. So you have one, two, three, four, five, like that. And so, so from one to 92, there's no room for other ones. Um, beyond 92, you, you, we're making them all the time, but they fall to bits very quickly. They fall to bits very quickly. The lady in great, yes. As someone who had to give up science at the age of 15 because it clashed with English history and geography on the school timetable, um, this may be a naive question, but um, I've heard it said that um, we can prove most things mathematically about Big Bang and the origins of the universe, etc. But what limits us is our ability to express that in, in language and our human consciousness because we can't experience some of these things. So I just wanted to get a view from the panel as to whether that, that's true and, and how close are we to reaching the limitations of what we can actually I- express through language other than mathematics. Oh, Richard, through language. Yes. Um, yeah, very interesting question. I, Michael Faraday, I remember in the, about 1855, a paper on this very subject, how much could he use language to express the work he was doing on ele- electrics mathematically? Um, I would answer it in this way, is that I think we are now in an extraordinary period of science writing, actual science writing. I think this has blossomed. Uh, I think Carl Sagan has been a lot to do with this, and we are seeing it with Brian Cox at this moment, this idea that it is possible to express the most difficult concepts, not only in language but in images, And those two are uh, a universal form of communication. And I come back to an important theme of mine, which is if we don't believe that, then our cultures split in part, and we can no longer afford that to happen. So uh, I believe here we are on a cutting edge again, and the new instruments of the Internet and the television and so on are wonderfully helping us in that. That's marvellous, and I think that brings us... We've splashed down with that statement. The, we're at the cutting edge. We're at a, 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 a new frontier of science and the uh, description of science, which our guests have done so eloquently. eloquently. There's going to be um, a book signing upstairs behind the bar or by the bar. Uh, please, could you remain in your seats until the cosmonauts have got out of the capsule? Um, I hope you've enjoyed this as much as I have. Um, and thank you, the audience, for tracking our progress. And finally, let, I'd like to thank the, our distinguished crew of cosmonauts, Richard Holmes, Martin Rees, Brian Cox, Charles Simony, who's, Simone, who's Hungarian, so I'd like to show off and say to him, Kusunum Sepan, which is Hungarian, for thank you very much. Colin Pillinger, for a really exhilarating ride. Thank you very much. Thank you.
Thank you for listening. You can download more Intelligent Square podcasts free on iTunes and SoundCloud. If you'd like to find out more about our events, sign up to our newsletter at intelligencesquared.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter.